Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is an episode about the fiscal impact of U.S. immigration. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I speak with Kim Rubin, an economist at the Urban Institute and contributor to a big report from the National Academies of Sciences about the economic and fiscal impact of immigration. Now, you might remember earlier Alpha Chat episodes about this topic. One was with Jennifer Hunt about the economic impact of immigrants only, and another one was with Mary Waters about a sister report, also from the National Academies, about the socioeconomic integration of immigrants. But on this episode, we're focusing entirely on the fiscal impact. And what's interesting about this topic is that it's the one part of the National Academy's reports that required a lot of original research and not just analysis of existing research and data. And Kim Rubin was one of the economists doing the research. As usual for this series, a necessary caveat, especially for our overseas listeners, this report focuses only on U.S. immigration. And some of what we talk about, yes, is of course universally applicable, but yeah... There's home country bias here, and I thought you should know that. That aside, here's my chat with Kim Rubin. First of all, uh, Kim, thanks for appearing on Alpha Chat. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Here's where I want to start. In earlier interviews uh, with Jennifer and Mary, uh, they made the point that the really original contribution of the report, as opposed to synthesizing a lot of the existing data and research, uh, comes in this part, in the part that covers the fiscal impact. And I guess my first question is just, how did you come to be interested in this topic? Uh, and can you tell us how the methodological approach to studying the fiscal impact was developed? How did it come about? So I came about being part of the panel a little bit differently than the earlier interviews in that I come at this from a fiscal sense. So basically, in my day-to-day -day life, I study state and local governments and the federal government and sort of what they do with their budgets and taxes. And one of the big questions that comes up, are immigrants contributing to you know, the fiscal bottom line, or are they costing the government a lot of money? And what does that mean overall for our economy and our, our country overall? And so, in part, we're following on the footsteps of an earlier study that was done in the 1990s, where they looked at both the fiscal, economic, and integration issues. So, somehow, in going from the 1990s to now, we went from doing one report where we covered all these questions to having two reports that are much larger. And so, in large part, we're following a lot of what they did in that 1990s report, but we're doing a couple of things that are different. The first is we're looking at how things have changed from the 1990s to now, a lot of which is that immigrants are different, but also our fiscal bottom line is different. In the 1990s, we were at sort of this rare period in our federal history where we were actually running surpluses rather than deficits. So this just means that when you're looking at how much people are paying in taxes versus how much they're spending, you're actually having those numbers mostly 
match each other. Whereas when we did this study, we were running a trillion dollar deficit. And in general, we're, you know, in the red, which means that at the federal level, basically we're all, not only immigrants, but also people who were born here, in general are paying way less in taxes than we're using in spending. The methodology we used, and this might represent the fact that we had a lot of economists on this study, is we did things in three different ways. And whenever we came to a question about whether we should do it way A or way B, we said yes and basically did it both ways. So It's about what you'd expect uh, for a panel made up of mostly economists, I think. Right. And, and so I feel like in the other panel, they would say, okay, this is the best way to do it. But in part, because we also had a lot of different perspectives, we actually ran the numbers you know, multiple ways. And so that means that we look at sort of year by year what the estimates are. So in general, what we do is we take all the money that's coming into the government and all the spending that's going out, and we allocate that to people. So all of the money gets allocated to people in the country. So some of that we assign to immigrants and some of that we assign to natives. And what we do, which is a little different than how people think about this, is we also separate out natives or people who are born here to immigrant parents from people who are born here to non-immigrant parents. And part of that is when we get into the results, the main cost of immigrants tends to be the cost of educating their kids. And so if we look at sort of what those benefits are when people get older, you can actually realize some of those gains. And so we do it in a cross-section. We do it over time. So we also do things that are backward-looking, and then we do it forward-looking, where we look at sort of what the 75-year estimates of the taxes paid and the benefits received from immigrants and their kids are. And we do both of those for the nation as a whole, both the federal government and state and local governments. And then we also do things state by state. In part, immigrants are now going to a wider group of states and places than they had been historically. So we're actually seeing immigrants going beyond the five sort of gateway communities that they had originally gone to. And so what we do is we also look at sort of the costs and benefits to states of immigrants and natives state by state and look at those costs independently. Yeah. And I, as I think listeners will have gleaned from your answer, uh, it is a comprehensive and sweeping approach. And on the one hand, that's great because you want to be able to make those comparisons between immigrants, the native born, and to include the children, the dependents of immigrants uh, in the calculation. On the other hand, somebody who's coming to the paper looking for a simplistic answer, like are immigrants good or bad for the bottom line, might be surprised to find that it's actually a lot more complicated than that. In other words, that the methodology, the assumptions that are made in the paper, uh, in the study, really do matter. And I guess I wanted to go into a couple of examples of that. Um, so why don't we start with this? Uh, there's a nice point made about how public goods are accounted for. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, public goods, things like national defense, um, the payment of the interest on the national debt, government administration, things that if I use, it doesn't exclude somebody else from using. How those things are accounted for when it comes to immigration. Right. And and so that's sort of one of the big questions. So some of these costs are 
what economists call public goods, or they're goods that if I use it, it, it doesn't take away from your ability to use it. And so the quintessential versions of these are things like public defense, that if you have another person or another 10 people there, it doesn't really cost more to defend them. And the other part of this is if we think about the public debt or the interest on the debt. So those are costs that are sunk costs or costs that we've already incurred. And so having more people here doesn't necessarily add to that bottom line. And so what we do in the report is we present things on an average cost basis where we give those costs to everybody, immigrants and non-immigrants. And then we also do it again where we basically only allocate those costs to natives and not to immigrants. And to sort of illustrate what the difference is, so if we look at the overall costs in 2013, immigrants made up 18% of our population. And by population, we're talking about adults. We're also allocating the costs of kids to their parents rather than saying that if you're a 13-year-old, you know, we're going to assign the cost of your education to you. This is mainly because kids, and this isn't going to be surprising to anybody, kids cost money. And so they don't generally pay taxes, but they use services. And so we just sort of assign those costs to their parents. And so if we do it on an average cost basis overall for the country as a whole, immigrants make up 18% of the population and they the deficit, so the difference between the taxes paid in and the spending out is about 22% of that deficit. But if we do it on a marginal basis, those numbers become they're still making up 18% of the population, but they only account for 4% of our deficit. And so where we put those fixed costs matter a lot. When I talk about this, I generally talk about how I prefer to allocate those costs not to new people who come, especially when we're talking about adding one more person, because those costs aren't going to go up. And another way that I explain this, and I don't know if this helps or not, but suppose we ordered pizza and we had a pizza party yesterday. If we then were divvying up the cost of paying for that pizza and we had, you know, another 10 or 15 people come in, if we could actually allocate those costs to them, that would lower the cost for everybody else. But it also isn't necessarily fair to say that they should pay for the pizza that they haven't eaten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th this is also, uh, I think, an example where we get into complicated issues of the short versus the long term. Because, of course, as you said, in the short term, there's no reason to think that you need to add the costs for the new people coming in because the overall costs don't really change very much. But, of course, those people that are coming will have children. Uh, they'll contribute to population growth. And over the longer term, the size of those public goods will probably start to grow a little bit closer to being in proportion to um, the population. And I guess that also is just a really kind of hard thing to gauge early on. But yeah, I just thought I'd make that point. No, and I think that's right. And so in the report, we also do this two ways. So we do this in sort of a cross section, which is the numbers I was giving you were sort of allocating sort of the taxes in and the spending out in 2013. The other way we did this is we look at sort of the characteristics of a person and say, if they came today, what are the taxes they're going to pay in that present value or sort of discounting it back to today's dollars? 
over a 75-year period, including the costs of their kids and any taxes their kids pay over that 75-year period. And in general, what we find if we use the characteristics of recent immigrants, which is different than the average characteristics of immigrants, which we can talk about, and if we don't assign those fixed costs, then in general, immigrants over a 75-year period we're expecting, on average, will contribute about $260,000 in net benefit to the country. And if they have more education, they contribute about $800,000. Wow. And before we get to, to more of the sort of concrete findings, I, I want to stay for a second on uh, these really kind of fascinating methodological issues. You mentioned earlier that uh, one of the primary costs of immigrants, or first-generation immigrants at least, was in educating their kids. And you said that those costs typically are assigned to the parents. But this also raises kind of interesting societal questions about the fact that, yes, but society will eventually also reap the gains of better educated people. And so I think that seems to be an area where it's also kind of hard to tease out the ultimate benefits and the ultimate fiscal impact down the line from what's actually being paid right now. And that's right. And that's partly why we did this 75-year forward-looking measure, because then you're capturing not only the taxes paid by those kids as they have started contributing to the labor force, you're also capturing some of the fact that immigrants, as they're here longer, are generally doing better and paying more in taxes. The other thing that education brings up, though, and I don't know if you want to talk about this now or later, is in general in the report, and there's general consensus that if you look at sort of whether immigrants are good or bad for the country, in general, for the fiscal bottom line, they're beneficial for the federal government, and they cost state and local governments money. And that largely has to do with the fact that state and local governments are primarily who pays for schools. And so the big cost we're seeing is the cost of educating and raising those kids. And that's largely something that state and local governments do. And then part of it gets even more complicated because the value of educating those kids or the benefit of having a more educated workforce, actually, the federal government receives more of that benefit just because of the way we raise taxes at the federal level versus the state and local level. So the fact that the federal government largely receives money from the income tax that increases as you have higher income and incomes go up as you have more education means that they benefit a lot if we invest in kids and actually get them more skills and get them to go for more education. Whereas state and local governments typically rely, they rely somewhat on income taxes, but it's a flatter income tax. And then they also rely on sales taxes and property taxes that tend to be flatter. They also don't necessarily reap the reward of educating the kids that are growing up where they live. So if you think about a place like California or a place like Minnesota, often people who are going to the schools and going to some of those good colleges in some of those Midwestern states then leave and go to a different state when they actually start earning money. And so the return to the states can be lower than the return to the country as a whole just because there's more mobility and the tax structure in place in different states. 
Yeah, Kim, this reminds me that the report raises kind of an interesting point about the relationship between the federal government and state and local governments, which is that if, in fact, state and local governments are paying the primary cost of educating kids and not just the kids of immigrants, but everybody's kids, uh, maybe uh, it should also be easier for them to sort of reap the gains when those kids also end up doing well and making a large positive fiscal impact uh, so that some of it goes back to the state and local governments and not just to the federal government. We like having state and local governments pay for schools because then they get to choose how much they invest in kids. But it does raise, you know, the question about whether the federal government should be paying more in. And in general, I think the answer is yes. The only problem and the reason that states get a little nervous about it is they don't necessarily want the strings that often come when federal funds go up. And so we live in sort of this federalist system, and so people can make the decisions that they want to make, but recognizing that there are these different costs. And not to, you know, get out of the field of immigration and into public finance, but this also raises interesting questions about the fact that we're talking about tax reform right now. And one of the things that we're talking about is whether getting rid of the state and local tax deduction, which was a way that, in general, that state and local governments are subsidized for providing the services that they provide from the federal government. In general, one of the recommendations we do make in the study is that it might make sense for the federal government to pay more of the cost for K-12 education. Yeah. And I, I guess this is also kind of an interesting point, too, because It suggests that some of the policy issues that we often discuss in the context of immigration policy are closer to tax policy or closer to political priorities rather than uh, an issue of whether or not we should have more or fewer immigrants. Does that make sense? And I think that does make sense. And I come to this from the tax perspective. And so one of the things that's really interesting in this study and one of the things that I point out to people is... A lot of the questions we have, and especially the question marks about whether immigrants and everybody is going to cost money or benefit our fiscal bottom line, has more to do with what we're doing on the fiscal side in terms of how much we're, you know, people are paying in taxes versus using in services rather than the presence or absence of immigrants. And so, for example, in the report, we actually have three different scenarios looking at what we think future levels of deficits and debt can be. And that's because if we stay on the current path, economists largely feel like it's unsustainable. So at some point, people are not going to lend us the money we need to keep running federal deficits. And so at some point, we're going to have to cut spending or increase taxes overall, and immigrants and everybody else are going to have to pay higher taxes to keep our country growing and the economy going. So that just sort of raises the fact that a lot of how much or how little immigrants cost has as much to do with federal tax policy as it does to immigration policy. It also brings up the fact that given the current demographics and the fact that we have a lot of our native-born people are nearing retirement age, and over the next couple of decades, they're going to be retiring the presence of immigrants and immigrant kids are the people coming into our labor force. And so because the baby boomers are aging and we're having more people leave because they're retiring, on the fiscal side, having immigrants is also helpful because they're the ones that are going to be paying payroll taxes rather than 
getting social security benefits. Right. Yeah. I I think this was this was a point made in one of your speeches. Um, I don't know if it's made explicitly in the report, but I think you found that all of the net growth in the labor force, um, I think by 2020 or maybe a little bit afterwards, will come from immigrants and the second generation children of immigrants. That is quite uh, an astounding um, trend. And I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more, maybe elaborate a bit on what that means uh, for the fiscal impact and what it would be relative to the counterfactual of if we had fewer immigrants or slower growth in the pace at which immigrants arrive to the U.S. Right. And so basically what we're finding is, and this is largely work that was done by the demographers on the commission, that if you look at sort of people who are entering the labor force or retiring, it's not that there aren't natives entering the labor force. It's just that more people are retiring. And it's because of the age distribution of the native population here versus immigrants. So immigrants, especially recent immigrants, tend to be younger end of working age. And so if we closed our borders, it's not clear we would have enough people to do the jobs that we have, irrespective of everything else as people are retiring. Now, it's not saying that the economy would slow to a halt because we have some people who aren't part of the labor force that we could try and entice back into the labor force. And we could have people who are getting close to retirement age stay in the labor force. But if we keep up our current economic conditions and our industry base, it seems like we would actually have worker shortages going forward starting in 2020 if we didn't have immigrants or their children entering the labor force. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the sort sort of uh, the logical extension of that is that on the fiscal side, that also means you have fewer people paying income and payroll taxes and so forth. That's right. People of working age, by definition, are in the are more likely to be in the labor force. Right. And and one of the things and one of the points we make in the report is we have a chart that shows sort of when people are paying in and when people are net beneficiaries and when people are recipients of government funds. And it's not going to be surprising for any of your listeners, but when people are kids, so between zero and about 20 or 21, on average, they're receiving more in government services than they're paying in taxes. When we get to a point in the mid-20s to about 64, 65, they end up paying way more in taxes than they're getting in services if we don't assign their kids' education to them. And then once you hit 65 or 66, you start receiving more government benefits than you're paying in taxes. And that's largely Social Security and Medicare. And so we have this sweet spot when people are working age between their 20s and 60s, when they're actually paying taxes and they're contributing. And they're paying income taxes, but they're also paying payroll taxes, which is how we largely pay for Social Security and Medicare. And so if you had fewer people in that group, it's going to make it much tougher to sustain those other benefits that people are receiving. And those benefits are largely received by native-born folks. Let me, let me uh, switch to something else that uh, is partly a methodological question as well. The, the report doesn't tease out the relative contributions of undocumented versus documented immigrants. Uh, the microdata, I guess, just simply don't exist for that to make those estimates on the fiscal impact. But I'm wondering if you can maybe speak a little bit to the concept of the design of the immigration system and the ways in which it either contributes to or detracts from the fiscal impact specifically? Because this this was obviously a topic 
that we got into in our conversation with Mary Waters on the issue of integration of immigrants, but I'm wondering if there's anything we can tell about the fiscal impact overall of immigration. Right. Okay. So in our report, we don't actually separate out the undocumented from the documented, and that's largely due to the fact that we don't have the data to do it. And so the data series that we're using, the current population survey, don't ask those questions, and we didn't feel comfortable imputing that information. Largely, the undocumented population tends to be similar to those with not a high school degree or a high school degree, so those with less education. So in our study, we do find that that group generally receives more in services than they pay in taxes. The part of this that gets interesting is if we look at undocumented immigrants, while they would pay less in taxes and their children would receive, you know, the education, if they have kids, we're going to educate them. But at the end of their time, they're actually often, they're paying taxes in on somebody else's social security number. So they're paying payroll taxes in, but they don't necessarily receive them. So compared to other low-educated or low-skilled immigrants, they're actually receiving less in benefits over their lifetime than the documented low-skill immigrants. And so there is the fact that the federal government has this pot of money that is the money that in theory should be going to pay the social security of these immigrants, but because they're working on somebody else's ID, the government actually benefits from that. Uh-huh. And Kim, setting aside the undocumented versus documented issue, uh, what can you tell us about the fiscal impact from the differing ways that people come into the country? So some coming in for skills, some coming to join their families, uh, some because of a quota system for their national countries of origin. Uh, what do we really know? So some come based on skills. So we have some specialty visas. Some of that has to do with high-skilled or scientists or going to college. Some of those visas are also for what we think of as lower-skilled immigrants who are actually coming to do, you know, very specific jobs like work on farms and things. And then often we have visas that are based on family status or whether they have family members or the country they're from. And also we have refugees coming in. So there, there are myriad ways that people are coming over time, and if we compare sort of recent immigrants or those have, that have come over the last five or the last 10 years compared to the stock of immigrants that are here, they're tending to have more education than earlier waves of immigrants, and they tend to be younger. So they tend to be coming in at working age. They're more likely to have a BA or more than a BA. Immigrants tend to come in two groups. They tend to be those with very low levels of education, so those without a high school degree or a high school diploma, and then to have a bachelor's degree or more than a bachelor's degree. And so the fact that the recent immigrants tend to be upward shifted in the level of education means that they're, over time, have become uh, more profitable or paying more in fiscally to our country than they had been. Kim, there's a line in the report that says that an immigrant and a native board person with similar characteristics will likely have about the same fiscal impact. Uh, I want to ruminate for a second on that because as I think through the trends that we've discussed in this series on the impact of immigration, there's a few things that stand out. 
One is that the more recent wave of immigrants have been, in fact, better and better educated. Uh, another is that the level of undocumented immigrants, which obviously tends to be a little bit less educated than legal immigrants, has plateaued in roughly the last decade. And it makes me start to wonder if we can at least extrapolate a little bit from that and say, well, in fact, the more recent, let's say, 20 or 30 year trends of whatever the fiscal impact has been may not be representative of what the next 20 or 30 years is going to be. That, in fact, the fiscal impact, if anything, would seem to be trending towards becoming more and more positive. Uh, that's a very general statement, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering uh, what you make of that. And I would agree with that personally. So part of one of the things that we discussed a lot was whether the changes in the characteristics of immigrants was reflecting a long-term trend or whether it was something that had to do with the Great Recession. And I think what we've seen since the economy has recovered is I think we're just moving to a world where there is less um, undocumented immigration and immigrants and everybody seems to be having more education. Something else that I think is worth pointing out that I don't think we've covered yet is it's also interesting to look at that second generation or the kids of immigrants. So when we look at them and even when we control for their education and their characteristics, they tend to earn more money, pay higher taxes, and use less services than both immigrants and the similarly situated people who are native-born without immigrant parents. And so in some ways, that second generation, as those kids become adults, they end up being the sweet spot in terms of contributing to our fiscal bottom line. And in part, that might have to do with, for a given level of education, they're more likely to enter the sciences or go into fields that are more economically remunerative than people whose parents were not immigrants. But we are finding that their return tends to be the highest of all the three groups we looked at. In the report, and again, in part, it was because we had people who had disagreements in what they think the next generation of immigrants would look like. But for some of us, we feel like the recent trends in immigration, that is having people come with more education and with more skills, is probably what we're going to see going forward rather than sort of the base of immigrants that we've seen up to this point. Yeah, I, I guess that would also combine with uh, a point that Mary Waters emphasized, which is that actually the U.S. is really quite good at integrating immigrants, that there does tend to be quite a lot of convergence between the children of immigrants in particular uh, and the native born whose parents were not immigrants. Um, and when you put all that together, I guess uh, it seems like maybe it's time to start considering whether or not we're sort of overemphasizing the sort of immigrant, not immigrant question rather than questions of just, you know, straightforward domestic policy and what's just sort of best for uh, the population at large, whether it's from an immigrant background uh, or not. That's, again, a very general statement. I guess I'm wondering if, again, personally, because I know that the report itself tried not to be about personal opinions and it just tried to stick to the facts, but is that sort of something that you came away from the report thinking? Uh, and if you disagree, um, maybe you can tell us uh, how you disagree. I came away with the same thoughts. Like I feel like we need immigrants and part of what is leading to our growth and vibrancy as a country is the fact that we have these immigrants coming. If you compare us to, you know, places like Japan or historically Germany, 
where they have aging populations and they don't necessarily have people coming in and replacing those people who are retiring. I also feel like part of, you know, our effort and where we're going in public policy is probably misguided in that I looked at the results of this report and some other things that are going on. And I feel like we want to sort of focus on how we can train the people we have here, both our existing workforce and our future workforce, to sort of lead us to the growth we would like to get. In in large part, for us to sort of thrive as a country, we need our economy to grow and we need to figure out how that's going to happen. And part of what is disturbing and sort of what's happening with the policy debate right now is it feels like it's a little bit more backward looking than forward looking. And so thinking about how we're going to invest in people so we can get the highest return from them, both for themselves and also for the country as a whole, seems really important. And again, this is getting well beyond the National Academy report. So right now I'm talking about things that, as I see them, and in part, when we're thinking about a lot of the rhetoric and discussion going on right now, I would love to see more investment overall in sort of training and education for both natives and the children of immigrants so that we can actually go forward into the 21st century. That also means probably figuring out a way to capitalize or invest in the dreamers and you know, figure out for, you know, intelligent kids that are going into school or, you know, thriving in college, how do we let them contribute to society rather than going back into the shadows and taking jobs that they might be able to do more with? Mm -hmm. uh, I've got two final uh, kind of follow-up questions from uh, topics we hit on earlier, um, and then we'll be done. The first is this, Kim, you said that in the long run, the impact of immigrants uh, for state and local budgets uh, tended to be negative, but that for the federal government, it tended to be positive. Can you just restate again if we know where that balances out? In other words, is the benefit for the federal government bigger than the long-term cost for state and local governments? So if we're looking over the long term, it is. And so in general, when we're looking at, and again, if you're measuring what the 75-year estimate would be for a someone with the characteristics of a recent immigrant and their children, we find that the return to the federal government is much larger than the costs to states. For states themselves, they actually get more of a return over that longer period. And how much, what that benefit is versus that cost has a lot to do with both what their tax system looks like, how much they're paying for education, and also the likelihood of those kids to stay or leave that state. And so if you have a state like California, it costs more to educate those kids. But because California has a pretty progressive tax system and people tend to stay within the state, they end up getting a return from that investment in education. In a state like Texas, where it's much flatter in terms of their tax system because they don't have an income tax, even though people tend to stay, they're, they're spending less in the first place on immigrants than a state like California, but also the return to education is less because of their tax system. There's another question that the report prompted, uh, for me at least, which is that 
I read this uh, and concluded, as you did, that immigration was still uh, a net fiscal positive overall for the country, but that because those burdens fell disproportionately on state and local governments, that that might have contributed to the sort of um, populist wave we've seen within the U.S., the populist reaction, um, the nativist sentiment. And I'm sort of wondering if there aren't like bigger sociological questions also raised by that kind of inequity between the benefits received by the federal government and the state and local governments, and whether or not that's something that might have contributed uh, to that populist wave. This is obviously well outside the realm of uh, economics, um, but I guess I'm just wondering what you what you make of that. I think some of the points that have been covered in the previous podcast, and I think were right, and I think are worth restating, is in general, when we're talking about how the government and the country as a whole is benefiting from these things doesn't take away from the fact that certain people might be losing. You know, so we do find on the economic side that people who don't have a high school diploma are finding that their wages are lower or that they're having a harder time finding jobs. So there are people who are, you know, having to pay those costs. If you're in a local area where you have a lot of immigrants coming in, your money might be going to pay for those schools. Now you also might be getting benefits. And especially in some of these places, especially in places where they see their populations falling, having immigrants come in can actually be really beneficial. But it is the case that once we get below the national level and we get into states, and especially as we get into cities or towns, You can find people who feel like they are worse off because immigrants are coming in. Part of what is important to, you know, I'm hoping people will focus on or at least think about is that there are a lot of things that are going on that are making life harder for people, especially people without a high school diploma or without much education. Immigrants are part of that, but it also has to do with the fact that we have more technology and we also are living in a global economy where more of those jobs are being outsourced to other countries. And so I think it's complicated. And part of what we were trying to do in this report is shed some light and put some facts out there. Now, we have a lot of numbers in there, so people can actually pick the numbers that they like the best. But I think it's important for people to recognize that, you know, having a thriving country and having people be part of it is really important for our future. Kim Rubin, thanks so much for being on Alpha Chat. All right, thank you. It was my pleasure. And that is the end of my chat with Kim Rubin. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code for our listeners overseas. Or you can email us at alphachat at ft.com. For show notes to this episode and all of the prior episodes, go to ft.com forward slash alpha chat. And please, please, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find out about us. And finally, producer editor Amy Keene, who is a Canadian, has I have no idea what kind of fiscal impact on the U.S., but the psychic impact is both a gross and a net positive and a big one. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.